Manchester, whose voice I have loved for a very long time, mm -hmm. and now I actually get to ask her about it, which is really fun, because I have a lot of vocal questions I want to okay. ask. So, first of all, I know that you're a marvelously super trained musician, but did you actually study voice when you were studying piano and harpsichord? <laughs> Um, I studied voice for for a while, um, starting when I was about 15. I had a couple of vocal teachers. Yeah. Right. Okay. So you, so you knew some of the techniques to avoid bad stuff happening to you. You know, all of that studying was before performing. I mean, I was a jingle singer at the time, yes. so that's one kind of performing. Yes. But... Um, not much of it applied once I was playing in smoky rooms. Right, no. And uh, then I got the opportunity after a particularly dire situation in a very smoky room where mm. actually nothing was coming out of my voice, um, where one of my background singers, uh, I had to drop the curtain, I had to leave the stage, I had to be flown to uh, a speech pathologist to make sure that my throat was okay. Wow. And yeah, it was very scary in those days. And um, one of my background singers said, I can help you if you will let me. So she became, her name's Wendy McKenzie, and she became my vocal coach for many years. For all the Radio Richard listeners mm -hmm. who are singers and want to know what to do and what not to do, mm -hmm. what kind of things did you go through at that time? Um, in the early days of performing, which was jingle singing, where you really learn how to think on your feet, because you're dealing with clients that really don't know how to convey ideas directly yes. and concisely. Um, that was more like the extension of singing in my parents' living room, which mm -hmm. is what I did as a kid. But once I was playing in clubs, once I was playing in very smoky casinos, and I started to get into trouble because I didn't have any technique, not really, mm -hmm. um, and I started to, s to study with Wendy McKenzie, she taught me about preparation before you go on stage. Mm. You know, she. I learned about drinking two liters of water during the course of the day. I learned about getting on a treadmill for 30 minutes and really warming up the parts you can't see in your body, nice. including those vocal, those little vocal cords, because you don't want to be warming up on stage. No. I find that that's terrifying. Mm -hmm. And, um, and also, um, really understanding about placement and not over singing and letting the sound guys help you mm -hmm. um, and really f insisting to the best of your ability what you need to hear in the monitor right. so you're not singing really hard in order to just hear That's yourself so important, yes. and also in the in the last several years and this is what i teach it's called the art of conversational singing i've been singing my songs for a very long time but I have found a way to sing them as if it's the first time, mm -hmm. every time. Mm -hmm. And that's very important because I find nothing more um, troubling than to hear a successful artist say out loud, I'm so bored by these songs, but you oh, paid for them. So I'm I going, I mean, honestly, yeah, I really? You're not grateful for the gift? Yes. How does that work? Yeah, so uh, the art of conversational singing is about 
using the song to be your side of a conversation. Right. So you need so so that the song becomes a living monologue mm. or a living scene. You know, mm -hmm. you're imagining what happened right before you start to sing the song, who you're singing the song mm -hmm. to, if the curtains are blowing, right. what time it. So you give yourself a deep sense of of a scenario to fit yourself in and to create a world for the song to exist in. And then if you do it enough, it sort of becomes second nature. But that's a lot of what I teach. Yes, and it's exactly the same approach that actors take as it's well. It's exactly the same. That's yeah. exactly right. So, so but they're actually on stage with somebody else. I'm not. Well, I mean, you're on stage sometimes with other musicians, too, and, and other singers. So you still have Rarely. to... Really? Well, but, okay, but, I mean, you, you still have to... Uh, interact with with your environment, whatever it may be. Mm -hmm. It might be just you and a piano player. Okay, let's talk about you were in the Harlots. I created I, the Harlots. Oh, you created the Harlots. Mm -hmm. Okay, so singing with three in a three girl group mm -hmm. or in a duet—they're mm -hmm. all different things. So, mm -hmm. what what are your thoughts? What what advice can you give to singers about the different vocal uh, group combinations that they might find themselves in? Well, the Harlots was unique because it was an extension of Bette Midler's persona as sure. a divine Miss M. So she really, she really wanted our bodies to to pose and and have all that kind of attitude. Mm -hmm. Nonetheless, uh, blending is blending, and that's what I learned in the studios as a jingle singer. Yes. you know, unless they ask you to step out and sing as a solo, mm. you have to find your place within the group. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're singing the harmony. You don't want to overshadow whoever's singing the melody. Indeed. That doesn't make sense. And so, you know, blending just becomes um, becomes a function of intentional listening right. to everybody around you. Were you usually top, bottom, or middle? Oh, I'm alto, so I was usually um, I was usually melody. Although in my mother's home, I always sang the odd harmony because right. my ear just went to that. Right. Because the middle harmony, I find, just mm -hmm. because I'm not a great singer, <laughs> is the hardest one. Mm -hmm. It's pretty easy to figure out the lower or higher, but yeah. Yeah, I was doing a part of a, an Elvis Gerald tribute, um, with, and I was singing three parts with the two women from Manhattan Transfer, Cheryl Benteen and great. the great Janice Hill. Mm -hmm. And we were, um, we were singing old uh, Hoagy Carmichael um arrangements and they were so close where you almost couldn't hear what you were singing but you know that's the thing when you're intentionally listening you have a sense of of purpose mm. you're not just you know blathering away yes you're indeed. trying to contribute to the overall piece just as a matter of interest what is your let's say you you knew you were going to be on stage in an hour and a half. Mm -hmm. What little vocal warm-up exercises could you show our, our our people about? This is a these are these are some good ones to do before you go on stage. Well, it's interesting um, because what I've learned is when I start to vocalize, um, it's very subtle, and you always keep your teeth slightly apart because there's always a chance you'll start to grit and tighten, and if mm. you tighten this, you start to tighten that. Right. It's just not good. So if you can be mindful of of keeping your teeth slightly apart, you know, and keep your tongue flattened, so that you're really aware of all, the placement of all the muscles, because again, you're supporting something that's so tiny mm -hmm. that you have to make sure that you're you are breathing deeply, you know, that you're 
that you're staying relaxed. You know, in the early days, even to soften your knees as you're singing, so that while you're while you're singing and going for notes, it's a full body engagement. Right. So you're not just uh, reaching yes, for that. Yes. Yes. Because that's that's how you blow your your throat out and Indeed. your vocal cords really quickly. But if you keep awareness from you know from the groundedness beneath your feet to yes. the softness of your knees to to the movement of your hips, to the depth of your breathing, to the ability to have that, uh, what is it called, um, intercostal breathing, where the soft rib is fully engaged. Um, and it supports this. Everything has to support right, this, right. including the thoughts in your head. Right, right. It becomes much clearer how to sing when you are thinking about something. Yes. When you are thinking about something that relates to the song. Right. You know, if I'm thinking about the meatloaf I left in the oven, did I turn the oven off? I wonder if I have my keys. That doesn't help your singing. Yeah, dead in the water. You know, but if you sing, if you think about whom you are singing to, and if you see in your mind the time of day it is, yes. and if the sun is shining, or if there's a storm, and you're trying to get somebody's attention, right. that all affects how you are singing, and it makes yeah. the process of singing so endlessly interesting because it's always different yes yes mm -hmm. one of the things that i have always adored about barry manilow's voice and when i got a chance to interview him i asked him about this thing that he sings ballads but he's got what he calls a two-fisted tone mm -hmm. you know it's a powerful mm -hmm. strong tone he's not singing it in some wimpish way mm -hmm. it's very clear and very solid and your voice, when you sing the ballads, you've got that too. Mm -hmm. and it's the female version of it. Mm -hmm. But now that's that. I am. I may be wrong, but that's kind of a gift that you're given. You have that tone, and mm -hmm. you can produce that mm -hmm. noise. But it seems to me, and one of the things we talked about was, you have to maintain that, and you have to be able to be yourself on purpose. So, do you think about that in terms of your tone, or over the years, has your has your awareness of making that particular Melissa Manchester sound, which is so powerful? In answer to the central part of your question, I believe, is that Barry and I are very old friends, and the two of us really understand that we stand on the shoulders of very great singers. Yes. And so we bring that forward. He understands about Sinatra. He understands about Tony Bennett. He understands about Nat Cole, as do I. I understand, mm. and he understands about Judy Garland, as do I, right. and Ella, right. and all of those people, and Rosie Clooney and Edie Gourmet, and mm. all of those men and women, whose whose journey started with having a singular sound. They were just gifted with it, but but the record companies that that had them made sure that that sound was catered to by songs that would service those magnificent voices. Mm. And because Barry and I sort of, you know, we matured in the singer-songwriter phase of the record industry, uh, we could write songs that would service our voice because we were writing for our voice, yes. or we would, we would choose songs or have songs chosen for us that would sort of drape um, on our voice and around our voice and service the best qualities right. of our voice. Which segues beautifully into my next question, which is about songwriting. Mm -hmm. um, 
I'm very fascinated by songwriting. I always have been. Mm -hmm. I wrote a book about it. Oh. And uh, it's right here, folks. Okay. okay, thank you. Do you have a methodology for songwriting? And if so, what is it? Well, I keep journals of ideas. And if I start to hear... Uh, if I start to hear music with an idea, with a lyrical idea, I'll get it down right away, or I'll write it down right away. Um, I've learned that it's it's much more efficient to write with a collaborator just because you get it done. But there are certain ideas that I just have to write by myself mm -hmm. um, because they're of a such a specific vision. Mm. Even if I've you know I had a, a song that I wrote uh, called "When Paris Was a Woman," and it was about Gertrude Stein and all of the expatriates. And it had taken me so long to write it because there are certain songs that I write that are so cinematic mm. that to find the words to describing what my inner camera is seeing is so painful because I just can't synthesize it lyrically. So I'll get a verse. Mm -hmm. So when I wrote the first verse of When Paris Was a Woman, I actually reached out to my friend, the brilliant Paul Williams, and I said, would you help me finish it? And he listened to it and he said, finish this damn song. It's it's your song. You yeah. have the vision, mm. and so I, I I struggled, but I finally wrestled it to the mm. ground. But but that's I mean methodology is it's all over the place. You know, I write choral pieces because that's what I hear, nice. and and you know I I hear the word singing, and so that's what I listen for. You know. Let me ask you. You touched on co-writing. Now you've done a lot of great mm -hmm. co-writing mm -hmm. but what I find and what I teach my, my students is mm -hmm. that co-writing with Sam is not the same as co-writing with Jane yes because everybody brings something different to the right. table I'd like you to give us a little bit of an insider look of writing for instance with Paul Williams or with uh, Carol Bayer Sager mm -hmm. or with Kenny Loggins mm -hmm. what in what way did you accommodate or because you're a great musician and a, and a great uh, singer and a great lyricist so how did you choose which parts to do of, of these songs yeah when I when I first was invited to write with Carol because she saw me in a concert she hired me to sing a demo and then she asked me if I wrote Nice. And at that point, I was just writing by myself, mm -hmm. never written with a collaborator. Right. So I went up to her house and we started talking because it's very hard for me to just sit and write with somebody. Mm -hmm. I can, and I've done it many times, but it's more interesting for me to hear how you think, what kind of metaphors you use, mm -hmm. you know, how many times you say just. Mm -hmm. yes. <laughs> And so what I learned many decades later was that I was the first artist that Carol was actually writing for and mm -hmm. with. Mm -hmm. So she was draping songs for me. Nice. I was just making conversation, and out of the conversation came these songs. Right. And realizing that her talent as a lyricist was very specific because she had this uncanny ability to start the first line of a lyric as if it's in the middle of a conversation. Nice. That's really odd and really rare and yeah. really sublime. Love that. When I wrote with Bernie Taupin, I was never in the room with him. We would talk about stuff. I wouldn't see him, and he would send me literature. Mm -hmm. His lyrics were so magnificent. Right. I thought, 
Right. Well, I mean, I hear the music, but this yeah. is so fantastic. I yeah. should just put a frame around it and hang it up. Right. Um, when I wrote with Kenny Loggins, um, we had been meeting in the green rooms of many awards shows mm -hmm. as presenters. Mm -hmm. And it was just kind of silly that we'd never gotten together. So he, he came over to my home one night with his boombox and a bottle of wine and his guitar. And we wrote whenever I call you friend and you know, he went off and right. had a big hit. With it. Yeah. Well, that's 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 really helpful. You know, just to hear um, a lot of people just think you just do the same thing every time. And, and Although I well, I must say, however, uh, I was an adjunct professor at USC at the Thornton School for several years, and I do master classes. And what I do, what I do, implore kids to really dig deep about is to find what it, how it is they think. Because as a teacher, that's all I'm trying to help them do is to think. Mm. Uh, and because that's a really, it, it, there's so much space in a young person's mind, mm -hmm. as much as they think they've lived by age 21. Yes. That when you ask them to support that title that they think is the title of the song, mm -hmm. with the inconsistencies of the lyrics, <laughs> and that it has to sound like one voice, mm. they don't know what that means until you point it out to them. Right. You know, right. and so because they know what their song means, I said, well, that's not where the conversation ends. What What would you say is the favorite, one of your favorite songs that you've written, but why? I'm mo mostly interested in why why it's so satisfying to you. Well, I love Midnight Blue because it was my first hit. Right. And and it's, it's a song of great tenderness and some weariness. Mm -hmm. um, and... That, that is a thread that seems to be woven through several songs of Carol's and mine. Mm -hmm. This, this, um, this uh, slight world weariness, which we knew about at very young ages, and it was surprising mm -hmm. that we had that in us, but, but we, we were a little weary at that point. <laughs> we, were, you know, we were young married women trying to negotiate relationships yes. in a world where part of the backdrop was the women's movement, which was yes, burgeoning and absolutely. trying to find where we were and mm -hmm. working for men, mm -hmm. you know, who really weren't hearing us and we could not figure out how to find our voices to clearly convey our, our simple desires. And I worked like a dog to support that. I did radio tours and secondary radio tours and college tours. And mm -hmm. although I had heard myself on the radio, as a jingle singer, plenty right. to hear one's own composition yes. for the first time is it very is sweet. a great thing. Very yeah. sweet. Well, it's a fantastic thing to have you uh, here with us today, and uh, I can't thank you enough. You're and very uh, Melissa Manchester, this has been great, and we're happy to have you. And mm -hmm. uh, we hope you'll come back again. Sure. Thank you. All right. Radio Richard is a unique collection of my interviews with fellow creators revealing not only how they do that voodoo that they do so well, but why. So please, like, share, subscribe, and donate, so I can keep this channel going and give you this great content. Radio Richard, be informed, be amazed, be inspired.